This is 15 Minute Fundamentals, where we interview core contributors within crypto and gain insights into their day-to-day operations. In this episode, I'm joined by Anatoly, the co-founder of Solana, a layer one blockchain. To cover the basics, blockchains are smart contract execution environments that allow for the permissionless creation of smart contract-based businesses, or DAOs. The problem that blockchains solve is that the time and money it takes to incorporate your business varies greatly between countries and jurisdictions, and it's often extremely time-consuming and costly to sell products and services across borders. For blockchain-based businesses, many parts of their business operations are global from day one. Blockchains bring down the cost of incorporation to one function call. Once a DAO is deployed on a blockchain, it inherits their advantageous features. Access to global capital markets, global participation from contributors and customers, transparent and highly automated rules of operation, and an immutable audit trail. The blockchain market was initially dominated by Bitcoin, an extremely simple and limited contract execution environment. With the launch of Ethereum, it became possible to, in theory, deploy arbitrarily complex contracts or programs on a blockchain. Now, as we've seen the launch of new blockchains that have optimized different aspects, such as speed, interoperability, cost efficiency, privacy, etc., it has become possible to deploy arbitrarily complex contracts also in practice, as scalability is no longer a limitation. In this episode with Anatoly, we discuss what Solana's core value proposition is, what optimization Solana has focused on, and how they're positioned within a multi-chain ecosystem. Also, we cover how blockchains can be valued, how economic sustainability should be addressed, the most exciting things happening on Solana right now, who the core contributors are behind the blockchain, and more. Hello, Anatoly. Welcome to 15-Minute Fundamentals. It's great to have you on. Thank you for having me. Been looking forward to this one. Now, you've covered the basics of Solana in very many podcasts, so I'm not going to spend time on that today. We'll dive right into some more specific questions. And to start, it would be great if you can just describe what Solana's core value proposition is within the blockchain landscape? The real core is I think it's the most efficient way to construct a blockchain. And it's a very subtle thing because uh, a blockchain is supposed to do many different things. It has to be performant. It has to have lots of throughput and have low latency for finality and also be decentralized, have very, very large number of nodes. And that latter is important because you are building financial applications on top of these networks and the networks have to have security that is better than honest majority assumptions that the network has to be stronger than us trusting the majority of validators per stake or by number or by any way. So it has to have a very large number of nodes. So where at least one of those nodes is honest and one of them says, hey, the rest of the network is lying and is stealing everyone's money. And I have proof because I have a ledger with all the signatures and all the transactions. And that that idea is like kind of the fundamental part of it. So you have to have that plus performance, throughput and, and latency. And those are very hard things to achieve. And I think I think Solana has done the best job of this. I, I would say, like, if you look at the raw numbers in terms of machines that are running the network, it's about half of Ethereum. So I think about like 30, over 3,000 Solana full nodes, and I think about 7,000 Ethereum full nodes. And by throughput and latency, it like, you know, it does more than every other blockchain combined, <laughs> uh, every other smart contract platform combined from user applications and stuff at a very, very ridiculously low price. Got it. That, that's great. And when we think about increasing throughput and scaling blockchains, a lot of people tend to focus on the trade-offs, maybe even a bit too much without speaking about the value that optimizations bring to the table. So I want to discuss the latter here. Can you walk me through maybe the top three optimizations that Solana really tried to get to work compared to previously launched blockchains? Yeah. So like this goes back to the foundation of Solana. Um, I literally had like two coffees and a beer. That That's as the legend goes. And I had this eureka moment that there's a way to encode passage of time as data. And I didn't know that the things were called verifiable delay functions. And if I did, I probably would have never started Solana because Dambane is, is a very smart 
guy at Stanford. <laughs> but that was like a, the impetus for me to start it because when you have a radio network that's trying to pass information between many different nodes, you have very similar problems. You know, two transmitters transmit information at the same time or the same frequency. You have an interference, you have noise. So you have to alternate them somehow. And in Bitcoin, the way that that's done is by having this difficulty challenge that is so hard to solve that it's very unlikely that two nodes will solve it at the same time. And they set it high enough to where that happens roughly once every 10 minutes. Because if they do solve it at the same time, you have a fork and that's a noisy state. And that is a very poor approach to channel utilization. So there's actually old school wireless protocol called Aloha, which kind of does the same thing. If there's a collision, there's a random back off and they kind of randomly retry. But that's not how cellular networks work today. They all fundamentally use this thing called time division multiple access, where we have a strict understanding of what the time is in a global level on the network. And everyone is assigned a specific moment in time where they can transmit. And because everyone is fixed at the moment in time where they can transmit, there's a guarantee that there's no collisions and information passes through. And that increases how much of the channel that you're allocated that you can use. And that's very, very important thing. It's not like the size of your blocks. Like all of those things are like weird little factors that you can try to tune. But if you have like nodes with one gigabit of bandwidth or whatever that are allocated around the world to run your network, and you can only use 10 megabits of that bandwidth, it's a very inefficient blockchain. So what Solana does really, really well is that because of the strict time division, we're able to maximize how much bandwidth that we're using that's allocated to the nodes, that we're efficiently using the channel. And that's what gives it that efficiency. So that's one of the optimizations. The other one is once you achieve that, once you have like an efficient way to use the bandwidth allocated to the nodes, you then have to actually execute and run all the stuff. And the other optimization that we did was a very parallel uh, execution environment. And this is a kind of like the really hard but practical problem that engineers have solved for, I think, over the last you know 40 years. Ever since there's been the idea of multiple threads and, and programming, people have figured out how to do these. And we use a technique called transaction isolation. So every transaction on Solana, if you're familiar with Ethereum, effectively is required to have an access list and that access list is complete. So a transaction cannot access any other state that's not in the access list. And the access list specifies which storage slots the transaction is going to write to and which one it's only going to read to. So that allows us to schedule multiple transactions at the same time. But what's more importantly is the third optimization would make Solana cheap. And we discovered this not in design stage, but live, like when we saw problems, is how the fee markets work. It's because of this isolation that we've built into the transaction layer itself, we can actually schedule transactions and prioritize them, not via the simple mempool kind of heat process that you see in Ethereum, but effectively running a bunch of local fee markets for every different storage slot. And that isolates an NFT mint from a DeFi liquidation, from a user transfer. So if there's a super hot NFT mint, that NFT mint may have like a million people that all want to mint first, but there's really only, you know, a hundred of them that can do it in the first block. Everyone else spills over, but the block itself isn't full yet, right? We haven't utilized that whole one gigabit worth of bandwidth. We can start fitting other things in there and that could be your liquidation, that could be your transfer. And this is kind of like the third cool thing that we figured out as we were running the network and observing like user behaviors and like kind of literally like when we were falling flat on our face from congestion, I'm like, oh, this is like an embarrassingly dumb problem that I should have known in design 
online. It's the database hotspot problem and there's a, a, a solution for it. Yeah, and that's fascinating. Those optimizations are also super important from the perspective of removing friction and lowering the barriers for people to enter and transact within this space. So so that's great. If, if we zoom out a little, now that we know how you are optimizing in this space, if we think of the broader blockchain landscape, I'd be keen on hearing where you see that you fit in in this current multi-chain environment. This is a good question. I think you basically have Bitcoin because it's Bitcoin and there's just kind of religion around it that no no one else can compete with. And I think Ethereum is a very cool and well-designed system for a settlement layer where they're optimizing for this mul multiple execution environments that effectively kind of have their own isolation primitives where I can move state from one rollup to another one and I can only interact with that state and that rollup. And in theory, high fees in rollup one shouldn't impact uh, fees in rollup two. And that, that's pretty cool. But that system is, I think, designed for a very specific thing, which is to minimize the amount of work that the engineers in the L1 have to do. And I, I wouldn't even say that like they say it's because they want to minimize the hardware requirements. But I think the ultimate goal is to ossify the Ethereum protocol and make it as simple and small and dumb as possible. And that is actually like really important. And that creates like a robust settlement layer and pushes all the complexity up to the roll-up application layer. But there's a ton of trade-offs there for users. Like there's performance trade-offs, there is UX trade-offs where I have to move like assets between domains whenever I need to interact with them. And all the solutions I try to fix that are never going to be perfect. You can't have an NFT in like five different states. It can only exist in one. <laughs> like there's like a bunch of data structures in, in crypto that that just doesn't really work well. And that's the composability problem of, of that space. And Solana is designed from the beginning to be a single monolithic environment where we try to be this like, how do we maximize the efficiency of the chain? Like how do we use all the hardware resources available to us? to maximize throughput and the amount of state that this thing can handle and the amount of concurrent transactions that we can execute. So I would say that like there is Pareto efficiency trade-offs between all of these and Solana occupies this like performance maximalist thing. And that doesn't mean that we're giving up on decentralization. We're giving up on hardware costs, but I don't think hardware costs are a blocker for decentralization. When you start looking into these things that are all chains have to implement eventually, for shared security like like clients. Like the vast majority, if we're talking about a billion users on the planet, 99.99% .99 of them are not going to run full nodes. They're going to run like clients and they're going to depend on these the assumption that there is at least an honest minority, if not a, one honest node in these networks that can notify all the like clients that the majority committed fraud. And that's a very strong security assumption. And this is going to be, I think, the de facto standard for any blockchain that eventually succeed. And Solana would be one of those that would implement something like this. Ethereum, uh, of course, as well. Yeah, that makes sense. And w what you mentioned about Ethereum there, we're definitely seeing it play out that it is already a settlement layer, even with these very low user numbers. If you look at most gas consuming contracts, it's layer twos. And now we're seeing layer threes come out and who knows how, how many layers will be built on top of that to scale. Your approach is very different. Now, assuming crypto succeeds, we reach a billion users within the space. I want to understand how you think about what the end game is for Solana, because do you see users and applications still interacting directly 
on the layer one in a case where we have several 100 million plus applications. Yeah, for sure. So like look at Twitter, right? There's half a billion Twitter users. It's about 5,000 writes per second. So this is what people don't realize is that like a large scale application with a lot of concurrent users doesn't generate that many writes. And all the only thing that the L1 has to do is writes. Data availability settlement, that is really actually all it does. It's like a giant Kafka queue. It doesn't even actually have to execute all of these transactions at once there's a bunch of optimizations for asynchronous like execution that we can do on the on the l1 and stuff like that so like solana as a monolithic chain think of it as one giant kafka queue for all of this data that's just being dumped into it i can definitely see it handling all of the world's needs because when you look at today's bandwidth infrastructure around data centers the one gigabit is free is the free tier you get a box they give you one gigabit for free <laughs> and like it costs less than a dollar per terabyte of egress right now so Bandwidth is ridiculously cheap right now. By the time we actually get to this, like 100 million user, concurrent users and any cryptocurrency network or com combined networks all in aggregate, I think we'll probably see bandwidth up sub 10 cents a terabyte. So at the end of the day, I think right throughput L1s like a monolithic L1 can absolutely handle it. And you see that from the other like kind of computational bottlenecks that exist, such as like signature verification, all the transaction processing itself. Firedancer has been doing demo of taking basically rewriting Solana from scratch in C, like optimize the way it should have been, you know, if, if we didn't have to like, you know, fly a plane and build it at the same time. Their performance numbers for their nodes and testing environments are like over 600,000 TPS. And this is like current commodity hardware, like Intel CPUs, like nothing fancy. And we're talking about this today, right? But we're when we get to, to actually see half a billion concurrent users and all these L1s, if we're lucky in six years, that's uh, 8x improvement. <laughs> <laughs> in hardware simply because of, of like every every two years there's a new generation. So from my perspective, I think we can already handle hundreds of millions of users and we have an abundance of capacity. We don't have the applications to actually attract those users yet. So I think monolithic L1s will definitely be able to handle that on the performance side. And I think like clients will be able to provide those users very high guarantees on the security side. And the real hard work, the engineering work is going to be just like on Twitter, you're basically most of the time you're spending us the read layer. Like how do I serve like all of these users at the same time? They're all consuming this data and structuring it and doing all this post-processing. And all of that stuff is actually going to be, I think, the, the hard engineering bottleneck. But again, you know, Twitter, Facebook, they've, they've all solved these problems at scale. Got it. That's very clear. Now, speaking about applications, given your architecture, which apps are the best suited to be built on Solana, in your opinion? And would that be apps with lots of monetary value locked within the smart contracts or something more like low value applications? And then also, what are you personally most interested in seeing? I mean, like, there's no reason why high value apps can't be stored on Solana. In fact, there's a bunch, right? Like, there's hundreds hundreds of millions of TVL and during the peak it was like in, in the billions you know Circle has issued over 5 billion of USDC on Solana so that part of it is like the chain and the smart contract environment is secure enough now what's interesting is that like you can have a low throughput high fee chain with high TVL because you're paying gas that's proportionate to the value of your transfer because that demand is kind of proportionate to the value at risk in any given time like what people don't realize is that the fees in, in these in blockchains are not really of throughput bottleneck problem. It's, you know, one of the optimizations that we did is, is this isolation problem. It's that you have economic value that's at risk, like a hot NFT mint that everybody wants. And then you have like a DeFi 
liquidity event that everybody wants because it's worth like 50,000 bucks. So all the people that observe these states and see an economic opportunity in it will bid basically up to the up to that value to be included in the block. And that race in Ethereum, because of how Ethereum's designed and mempools and the EVM's kind of single threaded processing is a global race. So if you're an NFT minter or a DeFi liquidator, you're all bidding for the same like write lock. You're all trying to access to the same state. Now in Solana that's isolated and those bids can happen independently. And that's where like the low cost comes from. And this is where like throughput comes from because we can actually scale the chain not because we can make smart contracts any faster, but because we can isolate those pieces and therefore allow for low value transactions to go through. And it's impossible for those low value transactions to be included in the situations that you see on Ethereum where you have an NFT mint and a liquidation and like Uniswap arbitrage that need to happen. They basically eat up the entire block because they're all bidding to be included because the cost of missing that transaction to those users is much, much higher than the fee. And we can basically include all of those, isolate them so they're not fighting each other and then there's leftover block space for everyone else and those low value transactions you saw that concurrently occurring this was the helium was migrating like their million hotspots into nfts on solana at the same time where like mad lads was minting and like blowing up and like creating crazy records so my point of view is that like you can do everything you, you want to do on uh, on solana that you'd ever want to do on ethereum you can have all these high value transactions and you're going to pay less for them that that's kind of the beauty of it and then you can also build really cool applications like Backpack, which is uh, has messaging built in, like XNFTs, where like applications are deployed as NFTs, and there's social interactions and all these other things that are that can now be like super low value transactions, but create rich data structure, kind of like a social graph, like on chain, and that that's really really cool. So Backpack is one, and Dialect is, is my my other favorite that's doing a very similar thing, and their growth playbook is really interesting. They basically it's a messaging application. I suggest people go check it out. Very simple messaging application kind of like telegram but they have all their sticker packs are nfts so it costs about 150 bucks to mint a million nfts on solana so they're basically minting these nfts for their users and the users are collecting and trading them through smart messages which are like a message that i sent to another user that's like a transaction that either I signed or they signed or we co-signed. That's a really, really cool, like very simple user experience that like I feel like my parents would get. Like in the context of a chat app where we know exactly what we're doing, there's this like thing, hey, click here to like send me like, you know, 10 cents for this like sticker, <laughs> right? It feels like you're so removed from the complexity of smart contracts and like looking at like the trusted display to figure out if am I getting fished by this website? <laughs> or not like and try to parse all the, all of these like smart contract addresses all of that stuff is like gone and it's beautiful and uh, like fast and, and cheap so that kind of like next generation like ux i think can only really be done right now in solana and like those are the builders that we're looking for because i think while it's really cool that like you know mad lad like skulls are selling for like fifty thousand bucks i think those outliers are going to be the rare thing and i think the vast majority of like value creation for creators for like finance should be transactions that are 10 to 20 bucks because that's what most humans do and this is like what most games do and like the fees have to be low and has to be fast and, th and look those are the builders that we want to find find me somebody that thinks that can like beat ethereum volumes because they have 100 million users that are all you know doing 10 10 20 transactions as opposed to a bunch of whales yeah that, that's super important and it's also great to hear about like the current use cases and activity you've been seeing on the chain uh, you spoke about 
about the devs and builders you want to attract to the Solana ecosystem. On the other side of that, um, I'd be very keen on hearing what the different teams and their roles are that are contributing to the core development of the Solana blockchain. So there's the core team at Labs, and that's working on the on the core Solana validator. There's a Solana Foundation run repository for proposals that everyone can contribute to. There is Jito Mev client that is a fork of the Solana core validator that they're the distributor for that have their Mev optimized transaction scheduling, which is really cool. So they have like about over 20% of the stake is running the Jito distribution. And then there is a, a team from Jump Crypto that's literally led by the their chief scientist to rebuild Solana from scratch in C to be as optimized and as efficient in terms of hardware as possible. And there's also like external contributors like Mango that are kind of, they've built building a lot of the DeFi application and DeFi infrastructure for market makers and stuff. And they kind of see a lot of the bottlenecks and they just go kind of sniper optimize things. Great. That, that's a good overview. As we have the core developer metric on token terminal as well, it's sometimes a bit noticed, unclear to people how to separate between ecosystem devs and core devs. So that overview also uh, shed some light on that. So that's great. Thank you. Then I, I want to move on to speak a bit about economic sustainability. Now we have an earnings metric on token terminal, which calculates revenue minus token incentives paid out. So revenue as the portion of fees captured by the protocol or burned. So for Solana, the sole inflation currently is larger than fees captured. And you have previously stated several times that you don't see token inflation as an expense. Could you elaborate a bit on why that is? And then also walk me through what economic sustainability for a blockchain means from your perspective. So I don't think I'm the only one that thinks that there's like an awesome post by John Carboneau that kind of went through the same thing. And this is maybe because I like I take a very engineering perspective on how these things work. So if you look at the system as a black box, its inputs are user fees. I think that's clear. Like users that want to spend like real world economic dollars that they earn or like work output that they've constructed for the real world and a portion of that to pay for fees to use the network, that's an input into the system. And maximizing that, I think, should be the goal of the applications and like kind of the activity on the chain. And then the cost of, out of that block box is the physical and operational infrastructure costs, like the running all the machines. So you can kind of think of it that and how the, like, the tokens inside that box move, it's kind of irrelevant, right? Like there's reasons why people want inflation rewards and things like that. But like that is almost like a, uh, outside of the scope, I think, of like trying to decide is this box sustainable or not from my perspective. So this is kind of how I think of inflation. And um, from a economic point of view, you can think of it if, like if I'm not staking, I'm diluting my tokens relative to the people that are staking. And there's reasons why those staking incentives is, exist. And the reasons are because we need validators to be permissionless. So we need them to be decentralized and we need people to stake with them. And that means risk their capital to be slashed. And they need to do the due diligence to figure out who are these independent validators that are not going to get slashed all at the same time, right? And cause the network to, to halt and stuff like that. So that's like the incentive model. Like if you're just holding tokens, you're not doing any work to make sure that the network is decentralized and is run by independent high quality validators. And the people that are effectively doing that work so they that's where that shift of of like dilution comes from and what that amount is or like 
how it should be done, I think, honestly, nobody knows. Like the um, Solano model was basically picked by the validators because vast majority of the validators that were in Solano were ex-Cosmos validators, still Cosmos validators because they all run multiple networks, right? So like the that model like was basically like borrowed from Cosmos and I think it's good enough because nobody can prove that like it's flawed in some way or there is a better one. So until that happens, until we actually, I think, see more, more proof of stake systems live and robust, like, you know, Ethereum has only been proof of stake for like a year. Is it even a year yet? <laughs> a very short time. So we honestly don't have enough data to know which of these models work like best. But I think you need something to incentivize the independent validators on the network. And you need something to have people put at risk when they do so. And you need some rewards and disincentives when people choose to kind of get a free ride of the system by just holding the, the token itself. So from that perspective, I think that part of it, that part of the system should be analyzed from like that point of view. But like from the sustainability is like how much are people spending to access the state, like the system, like real world dollars. And that could be fees generated in the network. And how much is the cost to run it? And the cost to run it like on Solana are like kind of luckily always dropping because the hardware costs are always be, are, are always dropping. And that's something interesting to kind of think about long long term. What does it mean when like the hardware costs keep like dropping by 50% every two years? Are we going to get to a point where like running nodes is effectively a negligible expense for anyone that's doing any kind of like transactions, like any business, any DAO that's operating, any like, you know, info provider or, or like, he's like, sure, here's like some nodes. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, that, that, that does make sense. I think that's a great take. And you mentioned that fees are to some extent, maybe the North Star metric. Um, a very actually specific question kind of building on that is that if we take Solana's current like annualized revenues so of the fee burns, it's around $7 million. And traditionally venture fundable businesses, they would need to reach something in the range of over $100 million in annually recurring revenue. Now, given that you are venture funded, what do you see as the path to getting there? Or alternatively, is there also another way to think about this that it wouldn't be necessary to get there? Yeah, this is like, I've been racking my brain around this. And like, if you look at even Ethereum, I think it's fee to market cap is like a thousand X, something like that. <laughs> and that's not really, that's like a seed level stage startup. <laughs> it's not really like a P&E that you'd want in a company that's worth $200 billion. So does that tell you that all of crypto is overvalued or is crypto valued for something else? And I honestly don't know. Like, I think those are like very hard questions that like, I don't have good answers for. Yeah, but, but I think that that is a great answer in itself. And to your point is probably the latter. There is something else that needs to be valued as well. And we're all still figuring it out as we go, just trying to bring as many both financial and alternative KPIs to showcase. Right. And if you look at Bitcoin, it's like, I don't know, 10,000 X <laughs> is, the, is the difference. And there's like serious concerns with like security of like the whole, if, if you're using hash power to secure the chain, what's going to happen as like rewards drop and stuff like this. Yeah, there's a big pile of unknowns that are going to be forced on crypto in the next five years. And if it survives, like, you know, I'm building Solana and I want Solana to win. But if the only thing that survives in five years is Ethereum, it's still a miracle. Like people have to understand that like this is so experimental and we don't have like any of these really hard questions answered. And like if Ethereum is the only thing that survives and there's financial smart contracts and 
transactions, even if it's slow and through a bunch of rollups, it's still a miracle that we got there. So whatever happens, I think it's probably going to be decided in the next five years. Yeah, for sure. And we definitely agree on the fact that valuing blockchains is a bit tough right now. Like there are several things that need to be taken into account. Maybe at a more general level, another topic that is subject of a bit of a debate is that are L1 blockchains businesses or not? What is Anatoly's take on this? I don't think they are. So I think this is kind of like the L1 code base is like a work of speech. It's like free speech. It's a recipe to, to run a node. Anyone can take it and modify it. There's like close to 3,000 forks of the Solana repo. We honestly don't know what the code people run and sometimes they modify it and this like blow themselves up. <laughs> An occasion blow up the, the network of Although that's been more much more rare. So like that's kind of like the weird part of it is that like if you look at the engineering part of the code of the token itself that runs an L1, it's not a business. It's there to be minimally extractive. Like it's there to prevent spam, right? And to do so as efficiently as possible. And that's not a business. That's just a literally a protocol with like a spam prevention token. And you can't really value it as a business. And this is kind of like the strange part that I think people have to start taking into consideration is like, you know, Magic Eaton doesn't pay a ton of transactions on Solana, but they themselves have a lot of revenue from NFTs that are on Solana. And so they run a bunch of nodes and those nodes provide security. So every business that runs nodes is effectively providing security to the network. They have an incentive to run them because they actually have a real world business. And that means that like you can almost remove them from the cost of running the network, right? So like the more sustainable businesses that run Solana, the less it costs to, in fees to like cover everyone else, right? <laughs> so you could have very powerful networks with a ton of very successful businesses on top. And the more of those, the better. But the network itself could be very efficient and have very little fees and like be, you know, maximally optimized, right? And, and like generate a ton of economic activity. So how do you value that? I don't know, right? But like, I think that's almost like a the best outcome for an L1 is you have thousands of businesses that are all like super profitable and all making a ton of money from the activity that's on chain and depend on that chain and they have a their own business reasons to run it and that means that if something goes wrong their own business revenues are threatened and they're going to be the first ones to scream holy shit the majority just like faulted because there was a remote code execution and somebody stole all the keys and, and took over all like you know all the accounts like we need like we need those independent third parties that care kind of about their own skin and the game more so than anything else so i think l1 ultimately is is like that hyper efficient kind of messaging layer this i call it a messaging layer ethereum folks call it a settlement layer it's the same thing it's like a hyper efficient like global like object for us to coordinate with <laughs> everything that's going on here is it's so fascinating and to also see how we view things and in real time perspectives are changing we're finding new ways to value things in your opinion fees are the north star right but are there any other kind of no-brainer metrics that you think could be used to measure or value L1s right now? So which KPIs matter the most? So I would say that like the number of independent users with self-custody that are like transacting actively on chain monthly, daily, whatever, weekly, that's probably more important than anything else. And like, especially if it's growing in like in new ways. So like, and that because that's been the really, really hard problem to crack. Like I think when people say there's like 400 million crypto users, there's maybe 400 million people that have accessed a centralized exchange. <laughs> but when you, you guys look at the daily actives between all the chains combined, my gut level 
check is that it's under 5 million right now, maybe under even like 2 million daily actives, like actual humans signing with self-custody. And that's a very small number of users. That's literally the internet in 1996. Like there were that many people browsing the web, kind of clicking around on, on random websites. So until we see that number grow to really 100 million active users that are using these systems with self-custody, we actually don't know what product market fit looks like. We don't know what products to build, like what incentives those people want and stuff like that. So that would be the number one metric that I would focus on. Um, I think if crypto doesn't achieve like 100 million actives within five years, it might never do so. Like, I think it might just be kind of like, I don't know, the equivalent of Swift banking, like Aave and Uniswap will continue running, but like, it's never going to touch like, global adoption <laughs> so something something's fundamentally like not aligned though and that would be really really sad because i think it it's such a powerful thing for users to have cryptography that they're signing with and that can effectuate change in, in, in the world with it. Agree. We, we definitely got to start seeing adoption. But next I wanted to speak about what are the most exciting things happening on Solana at the moment? Is this a good time for me to show the device? The saga. Shill everything you want. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go to solanamobile.com and buy a, a saga. This is uh, our attempt to break open the duopoly of mobile. So it's like kind of an impossible task. But, you know, if, if crypto things are going to like revolutionize global finance, I think it should be able to take on Google and Apple, right? Like, or, or are those companies so far ahead that nothing can touch them? I think the cool thing about crypto is that like digital ownership does not work with Web2 or like really how digital content is treated has been treated i think since the birth of the internet apple and google want to charge you a fee on all the digital sales that you do in their mobile stores 20 to 30 percent so that makes sense if you own if you're the content producer and you can kind of eat that fee right you like you get revenue from your content that you cost you much much less to generate and you scale it up to a very large number of users right so you basically send a copy of the same content to 100 million users and you give 20 percent of that to, to google or apple or whatever but if this this is like an NFT. It's not traditional digital content anymore. This is like somebody's physical asset, equivalent to a physical asset that they own. So when Magic Eden sells an NFT, they can't like eat the 20% cost because it's not their content, right? It actually belongs to the user that's selling it. And that just does not work with like the Web2 stores. And until I think crypto can demonstrate like sustainable, like billion plus revenues from this activity, like running a marketplace, can a marketplace make a billion bucks? dollars a year until we can demonstrate that i don't think the big stores are going to take us seriously so they're not going to change their policies so i think this is kind of that opportunity for somebody else to come in and like build an open app store that's open for devs to do whatever they want with web3 and without any of those fees and that means you have true digital content that's owned and physically traded and transferred like it should be and if those developers build applications that are so good that users are like holy shit i'm gonna go get a saga because this is the only place i can get my like Adlets, whatever, super NFT <laughs> that has like all the fun features that I want. That means that we have something. So that's kind of like the bet. And you can think of this as like the Roadster, right? The Tesla Roadster this is a premium device. It's built by a, an awesome company. So I don't know if you have one, but like folks love it. Like the company that built this 
the founder. He was the architect of the iPad Pro. He's built like crazy devices like the door in the James Cameron submarine that went to the Mariana Trench. He worked on that. <laughs> He's like a super hardware nerd. So the build quality on this is on par with the iPhone. So when the users, when we they get this, they feel like it's a premium device. This is the Roadster. And we want to experiment with these like business models with NFTs and like see if something like interesting happens there. And it's possible to do that right now because the number of like active users that actually like actively trade all of these high volume NFTs is pretty small. Like when you look at like, you know, Bored Apes number of trades per day is like sub 50, right? <laughs> so you can actually like get a premium device to some of the most important people on the internet to like start doing Web3 experiments with and, and see what happens. And obviously I think the goal would be for us to build the next model sometime soon. That would be like a much, much cheaper and kind of like retail oriented. And like, I don't know, I'm a, I'm a I worked my most of my career at Qualcomm, so I'm kind of a nerd about this stuff. But like the seed vault on this is really, really cool. It's implemented in the hardware chip itself. And the hardware chip is able to isolate the display and the touch like interfaces from Android. So it's it's like a trusted, it's called secure display and secure touch, right? Like, so when you're interacting with a seed vault, there's no way for Android to even take a screenshot of that. And there's no way for it to intercept with, which keys you're typing in. So like, even if like, Google decided to try to steal all your keys. They couldn't do it. And that that level of security was literally built for crypto before crypto was around. This was like, I think, close to 10 years ago that I remember people were researching this at Qualcomm, like people that I know, like some of the most brilliant engineers. And it's really cool to just like, I knew like the two things that we needed to do in the device to enable this. So it didn't take a very large team to, I think, build a, a really like world-class product that really doesn't sacrifice on anything. So I'm, I'm, I'm really stoked about how, how it turned out. Love everything about that because you know if, if everything else on the internet right now is mobile first why isn't crypto right <laughs> so there, there are gonna be so many like business cases that are uniquely enabled by mobile for you as well so that's great now at the moment if i know you have a lot of things going on but if we think of solana as one entirety what are the biggest drivers or challenges related to growth so i think stuff that's growing is like Hive Mapper, if you take a look at that. So there's this idea of token incentivized physical networks. Helium created close to a million IoT hotspots. That's really, really cool. Like think about virtual tokens moving around between people with cryptography impacting the physical world. There's literally a, a close to a million antennas generated from that. I think that's really, really cool. And they're going to attempt to do the same thing with 5G. Uh, Hive Mapper, on the other hand, is trying to map the entire world like Google Street View. And there's 60 million kilometers in the world. They're already at 2 million kilometers mapped. They just crossed that, which is insane. Like they're growing like their data set at a breakneck speed. And that obviously like that amount of real world data is ties in into AI and a whole bunch of other applications on top of it. And uh, Render is another company uh, that's also like physical network. They have GPUs that they're using to render like ray tracing quality images for like movies and they announced that they're moving to Solana so like I feel like using token incentives to build decentralized physical networks is kind of like that like proof of useful work stuff that like from five six years ago that actually works if you have like useful applications that you can incentivize people to bring their own like crowdsource their own data their own hardware whatever it actually like I think very compelling and in some cases could move faster than centralized providers could and what's 
what's going to be interesting to see is like, can Helium outpace the deployment of 5G micro cell towers faster than like Verizon and AT&T? And there's a very good chance that they can because it's a huge pain in the ass for those big companies to get permission and licensing everywhere in the United States to go put up these antennas. So that I'm like super excited to watch. The other thing that I think is interesting is like, and starting to grow is um, this idea of social finance. And I think that was invented by WeChat. And you kind of saw the explosion of WeChat around the world because they had messaging and financial applications all in one context. And you have dialect is one approach where they have literally a messenger with smart messages that I talked about. And backpack is the, is the wallet centric approach. You have a wallet with a rich application of NFTs that can jump you into a chat, right? For that NFT group, like instantly. So I think that is potentially like, could be a breakthrough use case, like in the short term, because like a moderate success in social networking that would be struggling to raise money with like 20 million users would be a massive outlier in crypto. We would be like, holy shit, there's like 20 million users that are all doing crypto stuff in the same social network and they're active and they're signing transactions. Like we can then figure out what product market fit is for DeFi. Do they want like a simple yield product? Do they want something more complex? I think that could be like a real breakthrough. So that I'm pretty excited about. And I'm pretty sure it'll happen. Like I think within five years, we will see like some application that's a combination of social and finance with, you know, 20 to 30 million users for sure. Definitely. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> now just, okay, final question to wrap everything up, but we covered a lot of topics here. Um, what's next for Solana? Is there anything specific from your mid to long-term roadmap? I don't even know. That's the crazy part. Like there's so much stuff happening. Like Backpack was not run built by labs, right? Like neither is Dialect, neither is Render or Helium or HiveMap or like all of this stuff is kind of happening on its own. And I actually have time to be a bit heads down and focus on like design and engineering. So like writing proposals. Uh, I think stuff that I'm really paying attention to that's next is like Firedancer, having them finish their implementation and get to testnet and then see like performance in, in, in real world hardware is going to be really, really fun. And I, I'm super excited for that. And I'm super excited to keep on expanding our coverage of all Solana data on Token Terminal. You have so much exciting things going on. So we're going to be working hard to do that. Thank you so much, Anatoly, for this insightful session. And I hope that we can do it again at some point to dive deeper into some topics. For sure. Thank you for having me.